0: Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George.
1: It's a great pleasure to welcome today to the Beeson Podcast the Most Reverend Robert William Duncan. He is the Archbishop and Primate of the Anglican Church in North America and the Bishop of the Anglican Diocese of Pittsburgh. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast.
0: Thank you very much, Dean George. It's a delight to be here.
1: Well, it's not often that I have the privilege of interviewing an archbishop, and I want to ask you a little bit about what that actually means in a moment. But let's just begin by uh, asking you to talk about how you came to faith in Jesus Christ.
0: Absolutely. For me, it was a continual discovery. Um, I was raised in a family that had an Anglican heritage, my grandfather had been a choir boy, but their commitment to Christ was not a deep uh, commitment. In the late 40s and early 50s, it was the custom of a family to bring the baby to baptism, to have the child done. It said in my family that I was a very sick baby until they baptized me, and then I got well. And then when I was 11, it was proper to have me confirmed. And when I was Confirmed I met Jesus. Mm. Uh, Again, wonderful parish church, uh, wonderful parish priest. He clearly loved the Lord. The process was one of unfolding learning first about God the Father and then learning more and more about Jesus as Lord. Uh, Finally, it was into my ministry before I learned about the power of the Holy Spirit. But I will say God, in in his call to me, was was so gracious. When I was 13 and serving as an altar boy, the the Lord actually spoke to me one Sunday morning. He said, "Uh, you will be my priest. Of course, I didn't tell anybody. But that was quite mm-hmm. <laughs> quite shocking to mm-hmm. hear those words. So he called. I'd, I'd made a confirmation decision for him. And, and the faith was becoming a personal faith. But it wasn't until I was 18 and a university freshman that I actually... Made the, the the kind of evangelical commitment that, that said, essentially, Jesus is the best friend I've ever known, and uh, so I'm going to take him at his word until I discover that his word is wrong. Years later, I learned that that was an evangelical decision. <laughs> A very
1: biblical one, uh, maybe, as well. Now, you know, Beeson is an evangelical interdenominational school. We have about 25 or 30 denominations in any given year who are represented in the student body. And we ask students when they apply and when they're accepted if they would identify what denominational tradition is theirs, how they identify. And increasingly, more and more students say they're Anglican. And uh, we're trying to understand what all that means. Uh, Let me just ask you, why are you an Anglican?
0: I'm an Anglican both because that's where I met the Lord, but also because of conviction Certainly Anglicanism is a way to be a Christian. I think it's a reliable way to be a Christian. It's not the only way to be a Christian. The commitment to evangelical truth, the respect for Catholic order, and the recognition of Pentecostal involvement and intervention and the kind of urgencies that go with that, all of those things operate within Anglicanism. And so it, it's both because my grandfather was a choir boy, uh, and I was done um, when I was baptized and when I was confirmed. But then as I learned and, uh, and really discovered Christian
1: truth, I found it was a reliable way to grow as a Christian. There's a term that is often used to describe Anglicanism. I don't know if you would think it accurate or not, or what you would say about this term, via media the middle way. Is that a good word to think about Anglicanism or not? I think it a fair description.
0: Again, in the 20th century, so many of the, the churches in the West and certainly in North America, the Episcopal Church or the Anglican Church of Canada became less and less uh, via media or, or via media. In fact, uh, one of the ways that folks t- have historically talked about anglicanism is as a as a bridge among the traditions again for someone who's an evangelical you don't have to deny the evangelicalism to also embrace the the, the the Catholic and sacramental life, or similarly, you don't have to deny either of those. To to embrace the gifts of the Holy Spirit. One one of the things that's happened that's just fascinating in recent years, as the Anglican Church in North America has emerged out of a lot of, f- of fragments and broken pieces of a once great church. The other ecumenical partners have come to us and said we want to be in dialogue with you mm. what they recognize for us in our stand is this bridge that they always used to be able to travel over if evangelical to connect with catholics or if orthodox to connect with the the evangelical so yeah you know, i think i think it it remains when anglican when anglicans are true to what Um, to to the peculiar history and and strengths of the tradition. We are
1: uh, uh, a via media. Jeffrey Wainwright's a great uh, theologian, ecumenist. Uh, Mm -hmm. I was sitting next to him at an ecumenical conference. This was uh, maybe 10 years ago. We just heard a talk, which was not a very good one, actually. And he leaned over and said to me, Timothy, you know, there are only two kinds of people in the world anymore, those of us who believe something and the others who don't which kind of is a sad comment in a way, and yet I think it is a accurate reflection of sort of where we may be in the wider ecclesial communities that we're a part of. You've made a statement, Archbishop Duncan, that when Anglicanism ceases to be confessional, that Anglicanism does not cohere. You talked about the fragmentation. Say a little bit about what you meant by confessional.
0: The Church of England, which of course is the first of the National churches or provincial churches to uh, develop what we've called the Anglican Way or Anglia England, and it's a Reformation church as well as being the Catholic Church in England before the Reformation. but the Reformation really fixed its um, its identity in terms of the Book of Common Prayer as our principal book of doctrine. Uh, which, of course, is just, as one wise observer once said, nothing more than Scripture rearranged for worship. The 39 articles, which are very much related to the Augsburg uh, Confession. The ordinal, uh, with which we bring into holy order deacons, priests, and bishops, those are really confessional documents placing Anglicanism squarely in the Reformed tradition, but with an embrace of Catholic roots, particularly the the apostolic and patristic faith. So that's the confessional heritage. What happened in the 20th century in so much of of Anglicanism was an emphasis simply on historic ties that Anglican churches or Episcopal churches throughout the world are largely uh, churches that came out of the British Empire. It's the bonds of affection, as they say. And in fact, the direction for the leadership of the uh, Anglican communion in in very recent years ha- has moved the communion away from confessionalism, or at least that historic confession, mm-hmm. uh, into simply a group uh, where there are these historic affinities. And Anglicanism doesn't cohere. It's part of why the the whole Anglican church throughout the world has broken into pieces. You get the kind of progressive, revisionist direction of the Western churches uh, versus the clear um, evangelical and and moral truth that you find in in the African or Asian church.
1: I want to ask you to say a little more about that. Uh, you're a part of a group that's called GAFCON. What does GAFCON stand for, and how are you related to it? GAFCON stands for the Global Anglican
0: Future Conference. The idea emerged uh, in a meeting in December of 2007, a meeting I was present for in the Nairobi Hilton. Many things come out of Nairobi <laughs> these days. Um, we used to meet regularly in London, but it seems that Anglicanism's center has moved to the south, as has been true for so much of Christianity. It was an attempt to provide a hopeful gathering for Anglicans throughout the world. Actually, a gathering that was proportional to the representation of the the various uh, churches. The largest delegation uh, was from Nigeria, where there are uh, 150 dioceses mm-hmm. and 20 million Anglicans. Wow, uh, it's just it's a huge uh, as as compared to the fragments that were here in North America, with four dioceses and a number of of other faithful expressions uh, in the U.S. and Canada. Um, the GAFCON movement was an attempt, as I say, to be a hopeful conference drawing Anglicans together throughout the world, looking at what we say is a global Anglican future. The contrast was that in the same year, in 2008, the Lambeth Conference was coming together. It was clear that many from many Anglican provinces would not attend the Lambeth Conference, even though they were invited to do, and some who would have attended wouldn't be invited. The American Episcopal Church and the Anglican Church of Canada in 2003 and 2002, respectively, had taken decisions related to the moral order Order, which made it impossible for many Anglicans to be in fellowship and at table with both those who were the proponents and, and those the perpetrators of those innovations. And so we we determined to establish something that that was based on, again, a confessional identity. And out of that conference came uh, the Jerusalem Declaration, available on online. If you go up to the uh, GAFCON website, www.gafcon.org, I think you'll find it there. What has happened since that meeting is that a number of uh, the provinces of the communion have organized together. There are now eight provinces Uh, The Anglican Church in North America has been recognized as one of the uh, full Anglican provinces by the GAFCON group. Present chairman of GAFCON is Eliud Wabukala, uh, who is the Archbishop of Kenya. In addition to North America and Kenya, you have the Archbishop of uh, the Southern Cone of South America, Tito Zavala. You have the Archbishops of West Africa, of um, Uh, Rwanda, of Uganda, of Nigeria, of uh, Tanzania, of Sudan. Also participating, but not representing a whole province. The Archbishop of Sydney in Australia. That's the GAFCON group, the GAFCON Primates Council, which I'm a member. Uh, We're actually going to call together a leadership meeting in the spring of 2012. That'll be invited leaders. And in The spring of 2013, we expect to actually have another GAFCON gathering, which will be much larger and be composed of elements that would be recognizable in our ecclesiology, a gathering of archbishops, a gathering of bishops, a synod of clergy and people with their bishops, and a mission conference. So that's exciting things to come.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I'm a church historian by training, and I try to look at this and see what's happening. It's really a pivotal moment, it seems to me, in the life of the whole body of Christ and certainly uh, world Anglicanism. And the future is in the hands of God. We don't know exactly uh, where that will go, and we're not given to know that. But it's amazing to me to see this confluence of faithful, believing Anglicans coming together, and the creation of the Anglican Church in North America is an expression of that. And I think you became the Archbishop of the Anglican Church in North America in 2009. I did. And so that continues to grow. If you could say just a word about what is the Anglican Church in North America— and how that relates to the Episcopal Church, in the United States of America, and to the Archbishop of Canterbury, that would be helpful to our listeners to get your perspective.' Let's see what we can do with those questions. The Anglican
0: Church in North America at this point gathers congregations and dioceses in the United States. In Canada, again, we we are a church in North America. What we understand our mission to be, very clearly given by the Lord, is that we're to reach North America with the transforming love of Jesus Christ. That's what we've been sent to do. I, by uh, God's guidance, uh, in 2009 when I was invested as archbishop, uh, I called the province to plant 1,000 churches. When we came together in June of 2009, we were 706 churches. We're now over 1,000 churches. Mm-hmm. Of those 1,000 churches, at least 150 are new. It's very hard to count the churches. Mm-hmm. I wind up, uh, last week, I learned that there was a new church forming in Altoona, Pennsylvania, someone who'd gathered a Bible study, um, someone who had a church building, and someone who wanted to join us. So this, we don't always know that's going on. But it's going on
1: If I may say That sounds like The New Testament to me It
0: sounds like The New Testament Again for us As Anglicans It sounds a bit like The Wesleyan revival It sounds very much Like the Irish conversions Led by Patrick Again a movement rather than something that's a hierarchy. What we've had to do, and again, what I say to particularly the young leaders who are coming forward and very much want to lead in this and really sense the Lord's calling them to give their lives to Jesus through the Anglican Church, I say that there are three things that are true about our congregations. They're accountable to Scripture, they're accountable to the tradition, and they're accountable for the transformation of their communities. And if they're those three things, they're Anglican churches. Mm-hmm. Now, how does that relate to the Episcopal Church or the classic Anglican communion? Again, what produced the Anglican Church in North America was a terrible, painful split uh, from brothers and sisters in, in a denomination that really had not only abandoned the tradition but had abandoned the Word of God, at least in some very significant things. Again, not just in the moral order, in terms of serial monogamy, multiple marriages after divorce, in terms of a very free and easy sexual morality and blessings of same-sex unions, all of that constellation of things. but. Uh, Increasingly, questions about whether our Lord is who he said he was. I mean, is he actually the way, the truth, and the life? Or is he just a way, a truth, and a life? And increasingly, not only the Episcopal Church, but mainline denominations seem to have been drawn in that direction. So we became a, a church clearly standing for what the church has always stood for and what we believed we stood for when we originally joined the Episcopal Church or the Anglican Communion. In terms of our relationship to the Archbishop of Canterbury, he is the first among equals in the Communion. He's one that I communicate with. I try to make sure he has a report for me a couple times a year. Our relation is not what it once was before the split in the Episcopal Church. Sadly, the Anglican Communion office, the the British institutions which hold the, the Anglican Communion together, have favored the Episcopal Church and the the Anglican Church in Canada, despite their innovations and their shift away from what Anglicans always held, indeed, despite their bringing division to the whole Anglican communion, what I think is happening, I think that the most important thing about this first among equals, is that the Lord in his permissive will is actually allowing a great reformation, or we've called it realignment in the Anglican Communion. We, for so long, believed that the tradition gave us reliable institutions to hold the church together. The so-called instruments of unity, uh, which are all English instruments, have ceased to serve the whole communion and reflect more and more Western values and, and Western innovation. Uh, and, uh, Something new will emerge, and I don't know what that is. I don't know if we'll live to see what it is, but uh, I trust the Lord. And again, I don't think he's done with Anglicanism. The kind of expansion that's occurring here in North America causes us to think, well, he's blessing this, so he must not be done with us. But it's always possible, like the Northern Kingdom, that a church could be judged and found absolutely worthy of judgment and therefore disposed of by our God, and that's a possibility. I pray that's not so, but it's we, we would certainly deserve it if that were his judgment.
1: Mm. When I hear you talk, Archbishop, you're giving a call to steadfastness and to faithfulness in very difficult, turbulent times within your own church tradition. In your office in Pittsburgh, you have a Scottish broadsword hanging uh, over your desk. Tell us about that sword and why it hangs on your wall. Oh my. Well, there we go. I try to follow the
0: Prince of Peace, but I'm constitutionally a Scot, so what <laughs> what can we what can we do with that? I also have a poster in my office that says everything I ever needed to know I learned from Braveheart. <laughs> um, one of the great lines in the in the screenplay is men don't follow titles, they follow courage. And if you would lead, we would follow. Um, uh, the the, the the broadsword actually was sent to me by um, a young priest, a priest I'd just ordained. Um, after the General Convention in 2003, this package arrived in the mail. Uh, actually, two two things arrived on one day. A wonderful bouquet of orchids from a, a very senior a dowager later in the diocese, and this uh, broadsword. We didn't know it was a broadsword till we opened it. Um, in uh, uh, that, that came from a young priest in in Connecticut, uh, and, and he he sent it to me along with some face paint. Saying that I was worthy of it, and it's a piece that I have and, and regard with affection for the young leaders who see me as a leader. Hopefully, the sword of the spirit, not the sword of, of secular kingdoms. But finally, Jesus says, "I came to bring not peace, but a sword." And and there is truth in that. And we've we've really suffered terribly uh, the losses of friendships and institutions. And the, the things that are lost by the church when Christian brothers and sisters become wayward and go off track, it's all there for all of that. It actually, it hangs behind my door so that it's only seen by those when I close my door.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I see. Well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, it, it's a matter, you know, of um, a pain to you to talk about this because, as you say, there's been a wrenching experience uh uh, in your own life as a, as a priest, as a bishop, uh, and now God has led you to uh, to have this kind of role in, in the life of the church. And I want to express solidarity with you on behalf of a lot of our listeners who are not Anglican, perhaps, but who sense uh, a spiritual kinship with you in the things of God and uh, admire you and appreciate you for your courage and for your faithfulness. God bless you in, in all of that. Now, before we have to bring this podcast to a close, um, we were talking right before we started about, you know, what is an archbishop, and and you you made a very interesting point. I wonder if you would share a little bit about this, that a bishop, an archbishop, too, is is a pastor. Uh, you have a pastoral role to fulfill. That's really what uh, an episkopos in New Testament terms means. Uh, could you say a little bit about that, keeping in mind that you're speaking on this podcast to a lot of seminarians, a lot of younger pastors? Uh, people who need to hear that kind of word of encouragement. Yeah,
0: I'm glad to do that. The notion of of a bishop is as overseer. That's the that's the Greek word from which we get the notion of of bishop, uh, corrupted through the German into English. The bishop is is a shepherd. He's a chief shepherd, um, an over shepherd over the local pastors. Again, pastor in latin means shepherd mm. so there's this this tremendous connection between the one who leads on Jesus' behalf, Jesus' people. What What is so important for bishops and what tended to be lost in the 20th century, particularly in the Episcopal Church in the West, was that sense that the bishop remained connected to a people. The idea goes all the way back to the beginning of the 20th century. And there, the notion that came out of American industry after the First World War was that the bishop should be a CEO, a mm-hmm. chief administrator, an executive, Indeed, out of that movement, the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, like the archbishop in the church in Canada, ceased to be diocesan bishops. Mm. And that really brings me to the the point that makes it easiest to understand. Folks often question me as as to why I'm both the bishop of Pittsburgh and also the archbishop of the Anglican Church in, in North America. And the reality is, that the wisest way the church has found throughout the ages to keep bishops connected to to their true self and their true calling is to make sure they always had a people. This past Saturday, I judged the local Bible bee. Um, There were 22 children from the Anglican Diocese of Pittsburgh, and when it was all over, they all surrounded me, and there was this great picture to be taken because I was their bishop. I happen to be the archbishop, but they didn't know me as their bishop. But you see that the notion of a bishop, like the notion of a local pastor, is that that pastor really knows his sheep. He knows them by name. They know his voice. Again, this is all John 10, but it's central. It's crucial. We're not chief executive officers. We lead by being among the people. We lead in a way that the people so know us that they're minded to follow us. One of the highest compliments I ever got was from a woman. Um, she was then in her late fifties, member of one of our working-class congregations in the Mon Valley of Pittsburgh. And after I was elected, she said, "Oh, Bishop, we finally got one of us as the bishop." You know,
1: I, I'll take I, I, I'll take that to the end. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been the Most Reverend Robert William Duncan. He is the Archbishop and Primate of the Anglican Church in North America and, as he was just saying, the Bishop of the Anglican Diocese of Pittsburgh. Thank you so much for sharing this time with us. Thank you very much. It's been a joy. And now here with a special announcement is our Beeson Director of Admissions, Sherry Brown. Thank you so much, Dean George. I do want to invite everyone who is interested in attending Beeson to come
0: and visit on Friday, February the 17th for our Spring Preview Day and that's just a fantastic time to see what it would be like to be a student here. Take a tour of the campus, meet with faculty, meet with students, hear from Dean George. It's the best
1: way to really get a feel for Beeson as a school. The easiest way to register for this event is online and our website is www.beesondivinity.com backslash preview day and that will lead you right to the preview day registration page.
0: We would love for you to come Friday February the 17th for our Spring Preview Day. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, Beesondivinity.com